0: Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey, Solar Warriors. Welcome to a special holiday version of Suncast. Happy Thanksgiving to those of you faithful few who do actually listen on the day that episodes are produced. I am so honored that you're taking time on your turkey day. Maybe the uh, tryptophan is kicking in. You're kicking back and relaxing with the latest episode. I know there are several of you who fall in that category, and thank you for taking the time to do that. If you're new here to Suncast, well, also really, really grateful to have you on board as well. I hope that you'll find the next hour of your life well invested and that you're tuning up your skills, that you're learning everything that you need to know about the solar and cleantech business. That's what we do here on Suncast. We curate the stories, life and times, obstacles and career growth strategies of the industry's leading professionals, executives, founders, and uh, pioneering fathers. In many ways, today's guest falls in that pioneering fathers category. My dear friend Arnold Lightner, an entrepreneur and pioneer in his own right, founded a company called Skyfuel that, as I was kicking off my career way back in 2005, was already uh, taking on investor dollars and cranking out a really novel product in the concentrating solar photovoltaic industry. For those of you who've been following along, CSP has been sidetracked lately by the ridiculously fast-dropping costs of uh, photovoltaics, uh, regular silicon PV. And Arnold and I get into how, as a a young entrepreneur in his uh, late 20s, early 30s, he had to pivot his career away from the technology he had uh, selected and raised money for towards what the inevitability of the industry was going to be. I have so much respect for this entrepreneur and the way that he has learned to thrive and pivot, raise money, and satisfy customers and investors alike in his 20 years in clean tech. I hope that you will enjoy this interview as much as I did. And if you, like many on your Thanksgiving holiday, have extra time and you're looking to queue up, more episodes like this, well, then I would encourage you to check out the more than 300 additional founder stories and startup advice from the clean tech front lines over at mysuncast.com. So many solar and energy founders in our history and catalog, our history. I don't know why I said it that way. You can also subscribe to the podcast right there in your podcast player or Spotify, wherever it is that you are. So you'll know the next time we let another episode out into the wild. For now, I hope that you will tune up your ears and tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, because we're going to tune into this Thursday, Thanksgiving edition of Suncast with my friend, Arnold Leitner. All right, Solar Warriors, as promised, today's conversation is going to be wide ranging with an entrepreneur I've been watching and have come to respect over the last decade who is uniquely a clean tech pioneer and specifically for the suncast platform the first time that i've had the opportunity to chat with someone who has crossed the chasm between two different types of solar technology specifically having had success but come to a realization of where the market was going and been able to pivot as i mentioned in the intro arnold leitner is a pioneer in the solar industry getting his start in concentrating solar power with a company that I respected highly at the time that they were active in the marketplace a company called Skyfuel. We'll talk a bit about how Skyfuel came about and we'll talk about obviously the company that he currently is at the helm of a company called U Solar. But first, welcome Arnold to Suncast. Well, thank you, Nico, for having me on. Indeed, it has been a long time coming. Can you give me a sense of the first real exposure that you had to the world of clean energy and how you knew that this is where you wanted to take or focus your career?
1: Yeah. You know, these, these founding or founder stories sometimes sound incredibly untrue and uh, made up. Uh, and so will this. But it is, in fact, what happened to me. I was about 12 years old. We had a small in-school library next to the arts room. Everything was old fashioned in Germany, and uh, I checked out a book on energy. And you remember those books in the '80s that had only a few color pages in the middle; uh, the rest was black and white printed, and uh, and often the print wasn't very high quality. So I checked that book out, and it was talk about energy. I was getting fascinated. It had these these diagrams that show you, you know gross energy coming in, flowing out to waste heat and so forth. And I came across this one picture. To this day, I can see it in front of my my eyes. It showed a train, just freight trains on rails. And it said that inside of this train were low-level radioactive waste from a nuclear power plant and that that would have to be secured or secluded for 10,000 years. And it just struck me that moment that that was not going to be a practical way of, of running our energy world. And it was really the genesis of me getting interested in trying to understand what can we do? Because at that time, I already had understood that burning fossil fuels was not an option. And the reason I was so early into this, uh, maybe, you know, uh, is because we had acid, uh, we had acid rain. We had uh, lots of problems in, in, in Germany at the time. And so I was aware of already of coal-fired power and all these issues, not strictly linked to climate change. So I was looking around. And then with that realization, I came to think there must be something
0: else. At the at the ripe old age of 12. And you mentioned briefly, but you grew up in Germany, correct? That's correct. Yes. How'd you find your way over to
1: America? Yeah, uh, I like to think there's a more interesting story, but uh, uh, related to my academic interests. But uh, the truth was, I was uh, fascinated by the Canadian North. And I, I, I paddled up in the Yukon, Northwest Territories, with my best friends. My best friend, Chris, uh, also German. We were 19 and 21 at the time when we pushed, over boat, pushed off our boats uh, deep in the Canadian wilderness. And uh, at some point, I developed this idea that if I wanted to do this more often, I should live closer. So I was just trying to find a way to live in North America so I can go to the Canadian North more easily. And then, you know, one thing led to the other, and eventually I made it to Boulder, Colorado. Boulder, where National Renewable Energy Lab, but well, that was uh, not is. a coincidence. That is now not a coincidence. So I, uh, I was, you know, you have to make the right move, and so I was uh, trying to look for a university that was in. Um, solar research and there's a story previous to that but we can skip over that I would, and uh, so I found it uh, near you know found it in with the uh, University of Colorado Boulder and and also the Colorado Schools of Mines both of which were close to the National Renewable Energy Laboratory each of which had a professor that would take me on as a graduate
0: student in photovoltaic research well you have a PhD in physics it's one of the things that become it becomes quite helpful when you are trying to help perpetuate or launch an industry as you did uh, help me understand the work that you went on to do at NREL, the National Renewable Energy Lab, and how that became SkyFuel. Yeah. So um, my contact with NREL
1: came after my academic career. So as it turned out, by the time I had shown up in Boulder, I was ready to start my PhD research, which was this, is the second year into your graduate work in the physics department. It turned out that the National Renewable Energy Laboratory didn't receive the funding or specifically the, the advisor that was working with me that allowed me to uh, pursue this, uh, this research I'd came, come over for. Um, so I did a doctorate in, in superconductivity. But when I came out, and this is exactly where you and I make, first made contact, I was invited uh, by the consulting firm I worked for which is now Standard & Poor's Global plots to write a study about the potential of solar for the Western United States as a real energy source. And uh, during that time, I became a consultant to, to NREL, Depart- and the Department of Energy, and I invited, and this is something that will bring a smile to your face, and invited the entire solar industry to a meeting in Washington, D.C., and all the 12 of us came into the room, right? I mean, I, 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 not everyone was there, obviously, but it was a small industry. Uh, even first, solar was there. Ammonix, uh, companies that now, uh, history, um, were present. And uh, and then that led to me understanding the issues surrounding solar, the potential of
0: technology, and that led to Skyfuel. I remember that Skyfuel was unique in a number of dimensions. I shared with you that it was one of the companies that I bookmarked and said, these guys are challenging the way that we think about lots of different things. Not only that, like, but their website is uh, is is innovative and unique in the way that it presents information uh, and the way that it flows. I think I recall it was one of the first kind of parallax websites. It caught my attention. But one of the truly creative ways that you helped to I'll say spur CSP concentrating solar power was rethinking. How to capture, how to harness the sunlight? How was concentrating solar power in the in the aughts being developed, and how did SkyFuel challenge that notion?
1: Yeah, so the first was, you know, most importantly the the way the traditional standard platform was being built. And That's the parabolic trough collector. For those who are not familiar with concentrating solar power uh, today. Uh, back then, um, you should have imagined a trough-like structure, like a half-cut parabola, and there was a pipe at the focal line of that parabola, and it would pivot with the sun and heat, typically in oil, uh, and that that light was reflected onto that pipe with heavy glass mirrors. These were literally bent glass mirrors. And anyone who has ever brought home a, a glass panel of any sort knows so how heavy that is, and uh, that was the standard industry. This was sagged glass. This was a mirror that was, you know, led to sag in a, in a thermal annealing process. Uh, and then there was a metal structure out of steel that held these mirrors in place. And it was very heavy, very expensive, and complicated to transport. I mean, again, you would be moving thousands or tens of thousands of these mirror paints. So our approach was to say, well, you know the uh, the force of a photon impinging on a mirror is infinitesimally small, right? It requires no effort, no force to throw it back. So why not put something extremely light at it, uh, as light as possible? And the idea was to use a mirror film. You you don't need much, you know, to reflect a photon. Why do you have all these heavy glass mirrors? So ultimately, what we came to design was a also aluminum space frame. Which is much more customizable. Um, that's why there's extruded aluminum, right, versus extruded steel. The latter doesn't exist because it's complicated. But with extruded aluminum, we can create the kind of shapes and forms you need to make a really beautiful space frame, and then have that hold a, a mirror pane that's basically a film on a floppy aluminum panel that gets its shape just like a sail gets its shape when the wind blows into it. And it gets its shape by being inserted into rails. And the beautiful thing was that all mirrors would be shipped flat. They were lightweight. Uh, it was a beautiful, very strong space frame. And then you inserted everything on site. And it took its own, its own optics through the insertion process. It was strictly, it was pretty really beautiful. It was really beautiful.
0: Was the innovation around SkyFuel the lightweight nature of the product? Uh, or was there a, an additional advantage in terms of deployment? So there was
1: another aspect, which was the linear Fresnel system. Now I'll I'll speak to that in a moment. Um, But with regards to Parabolic trough, was the realization that we got to do this differently, right? We got to stop using glass mirrors and space frames, uh, steel space frames, if you want to move the technology up in size. You, You can't scale with glass; it will essentially deform under its own weight everyone who remembers the space Hubble, uh, the Hubble telescope problem with the sagging glass on its own weight, uh, that's a similar problem here. So if you want to get to 10, 12-meter parabolic dishes, this is very large structures, uh, you had to go a different way. You just couldn't scale up. And the reason you wanted to scale up is, of course, to get the cost on, but also to possibly introduce molten salts into the receiver tube. And there's a certain economy of size that, you know, there's issues of freeze protection, all of which become scalable and doable once you go up in size. Now, that was really the observation. If And I believe to this date that if we hadn't had the, the trifecta of the financial crisis of 2008, the low-cost photovoltaic coming from China and the crash of the natural gas market, that molten salt solar thermal technologies – would still have a stronger place in the market because their energy storage uh, is is very affordable and very effective so that was that was the goal of the uh of the lightweight parabolic trough to reach that point and you know we made it there but then of course all of these things came together which we we'll probably talk later about uh which didn't allow skyfield to
0: go all the way to where we had it intended to go well, i don't think we need to hold back to uh to, to later in the story actually i'm curious to know just for context my recollection is that around the time of Skyfuel, you were in your early 30s. So coming out of a PhD program, you came up with this idea. You licensed the technology from NREL. How did you assemble the team and the technology? I believe you licensed the technology from NREL to make this happen, right? And then you went and raised money. How'd that go about?
1: Skyfuel came to its technology. was um, very interesting For one, I had decided that I had a firm understanding of the power markets and the opportunities for concentrating solar power in the desert southwest, which primarily revolved around the ability of solar thermal to inject steam into existing combined cycle power plants, of which there was a massive overbuilt, and they were literally sitting by themselves in the middle of the desert and surrounded by open space, and they had been Oversized in their steam turbine capacity, based on assumptions that that steam turbine capacity could be used in the power markets as a form of peaking plant by injecting additional heat, uh, burning additional natural gas in the heat recovery steam generator. So that was my my realization that that would be a big opportunity, and so um, I was looking for technology and basically put a flag down in the sand saying, "Come to me, I have a business plan," and so. With that claim um, that I have an idea how to bring this into the market, I went out and met people. And, you know, back then in the uh, early uh, 2000s, you know, the the heydays of the solar thermal industry had long been gone. There was a resurgence of that in Europe, but it was still languishing, you know, in the United States as, a, as an opportunity that no one was taking charge of. And so you would find people that Got excited by a young, you know, 35-year-old uh, Columbia MBA saying, hey, you know, I think I got the money and I think I know how to, uh, how to get us into the market. And so I found uh, a very capable solar thermal technology uh, expert uh, who I brought on as, as CTO, and he had been working with the National Renewable Energy Laboratories on that mirror film technology, which we later marketed as Reflect Tech.
0: Yeah. How, how did you find this uh, technical co-founder? randy g yeah so randy um i knew
1: him indirectly i think uh yeah i knew him more indirectly through a contact in the csp industry and basically invited myself to his house and 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 said look this is what i have uh what do you think and uh look if you had been part of the first solar boom and then you know nothing really happened and someone walks in and looks like they, you know i have them the, the the understanding of the market and the money to do something you know uh, you know lots of people would get excited to be part of that and that's what we did he had been in the solar for a long time he had a uh, company in golden in i think it was called industrial solar technology and they had uh, built a small low temperature parabolic trough solar concentrator that was used for uh, hot water and they had done a number of installations uh, with commercial customers and also i think with the uh, uh, corrections facilities in the desert southwest, um, but he had this idea that this could be scaled up. This this film that I came up with could be bigger, and so I presented the opportunity for Randy to uh, say, "Okay, let's let's go, let's make this bigger." And then, of course, you know, you find an easy target with me, someone who loves technology, understands technology. I hope, and says, "I got it. I'm with you.
0: Let's let's do this." There is always a point where, as a founder, you realize this is going to work. Or this isn't going to not work. As I recall, somewhere around 2009, you had an interesting conversation with the then CEO of Sempra Generation that gave you a sense this maybe isn't going in the right direction. Can we talk about what essentially was for you sort of the end of Skyfuel and how that gave you the impetus and the ideas for what was to come?
1: Our whole premise was, you know, we can't beat conventional power in the market. But if you only provide solar steam to an existing combined cycle power plant, then the entire power generation facility becomes a sunk cost. It has already been built, and it's not being utilized because it's this, the market did not arrive for these power plants, and many of them were restructured financially. So and it turned out, coincidentally, that the temperature of the steam that was inside of the heat recovery steam generator so – folks need to think of this kind of like a, a bunch of tubes that get hit by hot air that comes out of the, the jet engine that is the gas turbine the gas turbine itself just like in a plane powers a generator but then whatever comes out in the back gets reused one more time to heat up water and sometimes you know or most of the times they uh, added extra uh, burners into that exhaust just like an afterburn on a jet and then the steam turbine that is driven by that steam cycle was oversized because of the afterburner called uh, duct firing, and that capacity was significant. We talked about fifty kilo, uh, fifty megawatts. I apologize for a typical combined cycle power plant. That's a large solar farm back then, and so the idea let's integrate this. And we were working, we were working with Sempra and uh, Mike Alman on their power plant uh, near Boulder City, Nevada. I didn't know that at the same time we were also in competition with First Solar. Uh, who also was talking with Sempra, and we had come in with something like ten cents per kilowatt hour for the cost of energy, which is unheard of, but which was possible because we are using basically the rest of the plant for free because it had no other use. We're close to uh, you know making a good uh, making a deal moving forward, and we were able to build some fifty megawatts at that facility. And then Mike Almond uh, told me, well, you know, we're going with 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 first solar. We're building this first uh, PV power plant. It was, I believe, ten. Uh, megawatts at a time, or 20, which uh, was revolutionary in size, and I um, came to the conclusion of the following: I knew that our standalone pricing for a full-in combined cycle power plant, with the generating facility, everything combined, was coming in at least at 20, 20 cents, 25 cents per kilowatt hour. So if Mike Alman, who I knew was not a dummy, would sign our contract with a PV company, it must have been anywhere between our 10 and our and the 20, our 10 cents per kilowatt an hour and the 20 kilowatt target and that told me that the game was over because after we repowered these combined cycle power plants well then we would have to build our own standalone power plants right there are only that many opportunities in the, in the field well after that we would be competing at some 20 plus cents against someone who's building today at 15 and uh, it was at that point that i went over to my team first uh, my investors next and and the board uh, at the same time and told them look it's, it's game is over Right? because there's only that many combined second power plants we can use to incubate, bring the technology into market, and then we have to build standalone power. And now we have a competitor out there that's coming in at prices that are below our target.
0: I've been wondering, what's your least favorite solar asset management activity? You know, those daily, weekly, sometimes monthly deliverables that you just have to check off the list but can be such a drag Well, let me tell you how to press the easy button and get going on the work that really matters by automating your invoicing and ticketing and reporting with Powerhub. Focus on the work that you want to do. Take the boring stuff off your plate with Powerhub. You can go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. So for those who listened to way back in the day, Suncast episode with the eponymous Dan, sure, the, the rest of the story will sound mildly familiar. You realized, as many who were working on concentrating solar power, that part of the underlying technology of SkyFuel was in the tracker. Help me understand a bit of sort of the, your last days at SkyFuel and some of the proposals that you made that at the time, we're talking 2008, 2009, were definitely ahead of their time Yes, so
1: poorly for me in timing. Uh, Solar Millennium was signing up uh, hundreds of million dollars contracts with the utilities in Southern California. At the same time, I was going to my investors, the board, and told them that the game is over. Saying this isn't going to work. Yeah, this is not going to work. And so then, of course, immediately was to point into the press release and said, "Look at those guys. They're selling uh, power plants. People are buying this. You're not right. You know, you're wrong. You, your analysis is not correct." And I said, well, you know, they will be losing their shirt. Uh, this will not have a happy ending because numbers just don't lie. And, and I told them also plainly these power plants will never get built. And uh, indeed, I think for 75, 80% of them, they never got built. Some got pulled through out, out of the bad out of bad conscience by the CPUC in California. You know, the one another was built against the better knowledge that prices had dropped dramatically. But going back, I, I looked at the company and, and realized, look, um, we're expert in solar resource assessment. Uh, we have a team of uh, of 35 people. We have a 40,000 square foot facility. I believe it was it was the uh, former Rocky Flats decommissioning uh, site, a warehouse. And we know everything about tracking. And, and the one thing that the solar panels also needed, regular PV, was tracking. So while it tracked at much lower accuracy, we were tracking it in a fraction of a degree. And those guys only have to fr- fr- track it one or two degrees. Well, how hard it is to, do, to become sloppy, right? And, and so uh, my thought was, well, let's take the solar thermal technology aspect, the parabolic, trough, the wonderful mirrors, and pains us as much as we thought we just built something credible and sell it off to someone who still sees the market in that. And so, you know, we thought there was plenty of buyers still in the Middle East for that uh, technology or otherwise uh, elsewhere. And then take the team, take all of our experience in tracking and space frame design and come up with the best tracker that we could come up with. And you mentioned Dan Sugar. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what Dan did. And, that's you know, right. and at and the same not, time.
0: Yeah, but Next Tracker. He joined yeah. Solaria, January yeah. 2010 and about a year later, he spun out what we now know as Next Tracker. Yes. With the exact same hypothesis. Yes, and uh, you know, I uh, I couldn't be happier for him. And as a matter of fact,
1: it's been my my star that I point to and say, so look, look at him, right? right. Look what, what we could have done. Right? Exactly. We would have we would have had to split the bounty in half, uh, presumably because both of us might have been successful. Uh, but he'd had a phenomenal exit, and uh, he's still with Next Tracker. And that's exactly what we had to do. You you know, you have to. There was this famous. Uh, oil ship, uh, a sail ship that was built, a sailing ship that was built to haul oil down the eastern seaboard uh, at the early 19th century. And it was the largest sail ship, sailing ship ever built in a futile attempt to compete one more time with the steam engine. And that ship actually sank in the Caribbean and created the world's first oil spill. And I, I brought that picture up, uh, I saw New York Times an example of obsolete technology, and I brought it up in this meeting with my team that I mentioned earlier. I just saw this black and white photo and, and, and asked the unsuspected team after my call with Mike Allman and, and a week of thinking over this, said, what is this on the wall? And I said, well, that's a sailing ship. No, I said, that's obsolete technology. Okay. And we just built that. Right. But there's great technology in there. So let's take, you know, what is good about it and apply it uh, to the new world. That was what I was trying to take you solar, uh, SkyFuel. Uh, I was trying to take SkyFuel forward.
0: As we fast forward a bit, uh, we'll we'll skim over the uh, salty uh, reality that as a young CEO who saw the real future but uh, didn't uh, didn't align with your peers in the marketplace, you were ousted by the board. Yet in that time, two thousand four to two thousand and ten you came to the realization that storing energy was the actual key to scaling the industry.
1: Well, take it a step further, and I'll have a counter thesis for you in a moment. I think there was a, a double realization that occurred, and and it, it came to me. I was doing, you know, initially, as with every founder, you hang on to what you know best and try to think of the next solar thermal power venture. And eventually, you know, even your own train hasn't stopped rolling down the tracks, although you would pulled the brake a long time ago. So eventually that that train stopped, and I said to myself, okay, um, what's next? And, you know, I, need, I had a young son on the way, and so I ended up doing photovoltaic large-scale solar project development in Canada, and gave me some time to in Ontario, which was a good market at the time. Gave me some time to think things through, and then I, uh, I I put my. And this gets to your your question. I put my phone into a, a solar charger, and an iPhone obviously is a battery, right? There's a battery inside, and there's a solar panel, and I plugged it in and realized, oh my goodness! Uh, once you combine a solar panel with an iPhone, you're completely self in energy independent. Well, how about you make this bigger? And I came to realize that no, that was, was way before the Tesla Powerwall, right? But I realized that these technologies is very, very complicated. But a key observation was, if I wanted to take solar off the track, and the track being utility grid, and the reliance on the entire solar industry to work with and depend on utility, if we wanted to take it off the tracks and do something go anywhere in the world, we need to combine it with storage. Because we need to have something that works anywhere, whether the grid is up or the grid is down. So storage became a critical part of this whole design. But also, and we can talk about this more, the very nature of the architecture, how to build such a system, how to make it really the apple of the the solar industry or or the innovative uh, technology of the future. We can talk about this in a a moment. But our challenge uh, the talking point of the industry. The last mile of distributed solar or distributed renewable energy in general but solar specifically because it's de facto the one that we will fall all into because it's abundant and everywhere. The last mile is an energy storage. It's solved. The problem is completely solved. We can buy one kilowatt hour of high-performance lithium-ion batteries from China with the battery management systems for $160 per kilowatt hour. That is plenty cheap for any place where you overcome costs of distribution generation. The last mile is power. It is not energy storage. Once you deliver your own power, the entire power to run all the appliances at the house, you become free of the utilities. Only then can you turn the power grid into an energy source. And and here's the example that people don't think rationalize. The distribution system in your neighborhood is 10 times bigger than it needs to be to deliver average energy. And let's take the data for a house. A house, say, has At 10 kilowatt peak demand, on average, it will only consume one kilowatt. Now, if you then produce half of that with solar energy on your roof, that would mean if you were able to store that energy locally and produce all of the 10 kilowatts locally, your energy pipe to your house only would have to be 500 watts. And that infrastructure cost is dramatic. Those are the poles outside the house you don't like. Those are the lines dangling in front of your view. And that is the infrastructure yet to have that yet has to be built to deliver power to billions of people in emerging markets. So if you can get rid of that cost and that infrastructure is when you really transform the industry. And that's what the power block does. It's a high power system that delivers whole home power. And that's really the game changer. So uh, number one thesis is that um, energy storage was critical to build a system that no longer relies on the utility system for storage, which is the net metering. The second thing is, if you introduce a battery, its most important attribute—I didn't get to that—especially of lithium-ion batteries, period, and lithium-ion phosphate in particular—is its ability to deliver high, sustained power until the battery is dead. You can run a lithium-ion phosphate battery from 100% down to zero at its full discharge rate. So now that's not possible for lead-acid battery, as you know. You know, after cranking a while, the car needs to re- the battery needs to recover. And as it turns out, the discharge power of batteries. Of lithium batteries is high enough that paired with the adequate amount of, of energy storage that you need, you can actually meet the total peak demand of a house in terms of power. So, a typical residential home with about 10,000 kilowatt hours of annual consumption needs about 25 kilowatt hours of energy storage to cycle all of the solar through its own system, not net meter, and be energy independent from power outages you know, uh, for, for a couple of days that twenty five kilowatt hours delivers twenty five kilowatts of power. That is enough. If you took a twenty five kilowatt hour car battery, I don't know the exact number for me, it probably would deliver two and a half kilowatts of power, which is absolutely inadequate for a home and that is the game changer. It's a lithium ion battery it doesn't only create cheaper energy storage, it suddenly provides a high power source that can run until the battery is empty. So energy storage is is viewed as the holy grail. Of distributed energy storage, and I'm uh, sorry, distributed energy, dis- energy storage is the holy grail of distributed power, and I'm sure you have heard that many times, yeah, right? Yes, of course. And I, my answer is that problem has been solved, okay? And it's and, and it's not and that and that is not the real, real important distinction of of lithium-ion phosphate, uh, lithium-ion batteries. The real game changer, it's it's ying and yang. Yes, without energy storage, we couldn't do one, but the one thing that comes for free. That absolutely, you know, with the storage, that really changes everything now is the ability of those batteries to deliver high power over a sustained period of time. And that allows you to reduce the connection to the grid, the power rating of your pipe by a factor of 10, if not 20.
0: And now the underlying infrastructure can be much simpler. How does the average homeowner experience the cost of the underlying infrastructure versus the future that you want to portray?
1: Well, at least a third of your cost of utility bill is that underlying infrastructure. The generation cost, the energy cost is usually a much smaller fraction of your bill. I mean, historically, I I would have to keep myself a little bit up to date on this, Nico. uh, One third is billing, one third transmission distribution, one third energy. So if you're self-sustained, well, you're cutting out the billing, right? Don't you? And if you don't use the distribution system, you're cutting out that cost as well. So you can you can now compete against a cost that is three times higher than what your own cost is, and you're still in the in the money because you you don't have to pay if you have a standalone power block that's energy independent off grid. You don't pay for this billing and you don't pay for distribution costs. You only care comparing you know.
0: Yeah. So in a, in in the theoretical that's true. H- how does this free up utility resources to focus on other areas to solve? Because obviously they're not gonna really in, enjoy the notion that is inevitable that we're going to take away the need for them to be responsible for or or owning those pieces of the puzzle so what is it where does this leave utilities so okay yes it leaves stranded assets uh so
1: the first observation that we'll have is that uh people will come in and say well i have PGE connection for 200 um amp pair uh 200 amp to my house that's a 20, 48 kilowatt connection and they say, "Well, but uh, dear Public Utility Commission, I'm only drawing 10 kilo uh, amperes at a maximum. Why am I paying for this? It's sunk cost. It's you know, I don't want to. I don't want to pay the twenty dollars a month hookup fee. I don't want to be charged for all this cost. I, I'm not using it. And eventually, you get a groundswell of people saying, Look, you know, we deliver our own power to the house. We, we, you know, we're drawing 250 watts from pg e Why are they allowed to lever, you know, put this on my rate base?'" Well, and then, there's the next issue, of course, is that of uh, of the last line customers. Uh, I mean, this is this is a far-reaching conversation, Nico. And 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 the issue is here: there's technology now there that makes the old business model obsolete. And if you've never heard this before, you hear it from me first. That's the time when things change. Okay, so take this customer up in Napa Valley that lives three quarters of a mile with a single house at the end of the power line getting those lines cut free of branches to avoid a fire being caused by swinging lines costs PG&E $25,000 every 2 years right for one cust one fast for one customer just because you no know, typically you would put this over the entire rate base and now someone says why am i paying for that person he should get a power block installed and he's entirely independent. And that power line now can be a fraction of the size. And by the way, because he's energy storage and he has all the power to his home, his wall pump will still run, his air conditioner will still run with the power block. We're gonna turn him off on a regular basis. So if we have a red flag alert, he just gets turned off immediately.
0: There's no current, meaning there's no electricity arriving. There's no electricity flowing yeah. in the line.
1: Because and the reality is uh, you know, we have the reality is if you provide your own power to your home. And you store energy in your batteries. In the summer months, and this will something we have to talk later about emerging markets, in the summer months, your grid connection will be down for months. Take that house at Big Sur that's off-grid that we did. It has a generator, okay, because the generator represents the grid connection, right? It's, it's the it's the grid. Well, that generator doesn't run for weeks and months in the summer. That's like that house in that moment is truly off-grid if you think about Think of it as a solar-powered home, um, and so similar. That homeowner Napa, at the end of that power line, that costs a fortune to maintain, and who loses power uh, when the, you know when there's a red flag alert, that person's power can be turned off without power that person ever noticing, because they're already energy independent to start with, and that suddenly saves us ratepayers twenty five thousand dollars every three years to go down and cut that
0: power line free. And that money can be reinvested in other assets. That
1: money can be reinvested in renewables and, and social, and, and, you know, why are we paying $25,000 when we can't support low-income families
0: with the energy bill? So for those who haven't perhaps familiarized themselves with U-Solar, the company that you've started, PowerBlock is a product that you make. So the reference here is PowerBlock is a specific product to U-Solar, but how much would that customer to deploy a, a power block or a similar type of technology with that cost, even if the utility took it on as a rate base? A power block for a typical home, and that's all associated with the amount of energy storage.
1: Storage, you know, To become a typical single-family home is somewhere currently. And this includes the solar array, the high power inverters. You can't compare this with a Tesla power wall, Say it has a 5 kilowatt inverter. When we bring in a 16 kilowatt inverter, it's capable of 32 right. kilowatts. You have to compare apples to apples. We basically give you a utility replacement, and the cost for a single-family home, depending on size and energy consumption, can be somewhere between thirty-five
0: and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, and that's for an equivalent, roughly ten kilowatt system. Is that right?
1: No, that would be a solar system about five to six kilowatt. Ah, okay, solar. so
0: similar size, uh, but with yeah, uh, with but higher with twenty-five kilowatt hours of storage of twenty-five to thirty.
1: Uh, the storage, and we'll go about the storage is steep. I'll talk it's cheap. I talk about this in a moment, but then you have the high-power inverter that's currently 16 kilowatt inverter with a 30 t- th- I apologize, a 20 kilowatt inverter with a 32 kilowatt uh, peak amount uh the high power batteries the power electronics that make their work the ability to seamlessly integrate a generator all of that is wrapped into PowerBlock, power block including its intelligence for example for the homeowners in fire country we deliver real time hourly production forecasts from our satellite-based system, which detects the, the smoke plume, makes the generator start on early to fill up the batteries in off-grid environments, or draws from the grid early to charge the batteries. Other things are fully integrated. So the whole package uh, is about you know between 35 and 50, depending on the size of the
0: home. Well, it seems like that's something that, assuming as an industry, uh, we are able to help regulators and utilities realize the value of these products, we... Can also help to structure policies and regulations that would allow the utilities to reinvest some of the saved money into incentive programs that can cover the cost of these end of the line uh, systems that, in the, in the in eventually, and certainly by eventually, I mean 10, 20, well, immediately, but 10, 20, 30 years down the road, we are avoiding millions of dollars of infra- infrastructure costs to renew a failing grid. What's What's fundamentally difficult in the architecture? Of storage, I want someone who maybe doesn't have a, a a high higher education degree in physics to be able to understand the essential problem that we're trying to solve. With specifically
1: with regards to uh, the battery, there's the issue of the electric potential of the battery, and that's which people usually refer, refer to as the volts. How many volts the battery has, and you want to get that that uh, potential up high. You want to get it near few, around 400 volt which makes uh, everything smaller uh, in terms of its size because you push less current through the equipment, being that inverters, converters, anything you're using. And just give you a scale, um, a 50-volt battery, which is the standard in the telecom industry, and a 400-volt battery has a difference in, in, in cable sizing for the same amount of power to flow of a factor of 60. That's 60X. So... Um, if you ever looked at a car battery with these thick leads on there, that's obviously because a 12 volt battery has very low potential and drives high current. So when you come to batteries, um how do you get to that high potential? How do you get to 400 volt? Well, you have to stack small cells on top of each other. It's like literally like taking your AA battery and welding the plus to the minus and keep going, keep going until you're adding those uh, those small cell potentials up to 400 volt.
0: Right. And, and this is commonly, this is what Tesla does in their power That's packs right. for the cars. That's right. Yep. But there's a challenge in this. is If one of them in that little
1: chain fails, then the entire chain fails, right? It's like, Just like, the, it's like the old Christmas lights. Uh, the all cluster light analogy so what you do you put many of those chains in parallel and to opt, and so if you want to get a certain ratio of reliability to highlight like to potentially you put a certain number in parallel and then if one chain fails oh well i have all the other chains but if you could stay at 50 volt then um you know you, you the number of parallel chains can go down because the, the chance of making a mistake goes down and so you can ultimately have less long chains and fewer chains in parallel you get a lighter product but then you have a terrible 50 volt battery which has 60 times thicker cables so how do you solve that problem you solve the problem through power electronics and you solve it through a bi-directional converter which is a system that steps up the electric potential the voltage from the 50 to a rough around 400 and that's some of our core technology that we bring to the market and now allows us to break down the battery into sizes that an individual can carry it also turns the battery into modules where if one module fails because batteries will fail. I just returned my Hilti charging battery for my power drill after five cycles, right? It failed after five cycles. So batteries do fail. But now if I have five, five kilowatt hour batteries and one of them
0: fails, well, the other 20 kilowatt hours will continue to work until I can have that replaced. It, it sounds like what's happening in the storage industry is very similar to what happened in the power electronics industry over the last 30 years. Years. I mean, the the kinds of analogies that you're drawing are are what many who are familiar with solar PV system architecture would begin to connect the dots on how inverters have been optimized and how, in fact, products like InPhase and Tygo and Solar Edge have revolutionized the way our power electronics industry allows us to reduce the overall complexity and headache of connecting PV panels to the electrical system. Is that correct, or am I making it? That's a- absolutely
1: correct. The, okay. You know, I want I, I to celebrate in a moment uh, the Tesla car, because we all know it. It's a phenomenal piece of technology. But let's strip away a little bit What it's unique about Tesla. Let's say, is it the tires that make the Tesla car special? I doubt it, right? You can get tires anywhere. The windshield? No. The leather seats? No. The blinkers? No. So if you strip it down, you come back to the battery, like the battery? No. Until recently, before the Gigafactory, they purchased those. From Sony, I believe. So at the end, if you strip it all down, what is Tesla? Motors. It's the software and the power electronics, right? And, and what converts that energy into drivetrain power. And so if you go back to what you just started with, for the industry, it is also the power electronics that makes the batteries and the solar panels interact and work with the grid or on its own. And that's where the magic
0: lies. Yeah, That's it, the innovation. And I feel even this is extremely useful, I believe, for even homeowners who are listening, who might be very unclear on how to evaluate a technology partner. And that is what you're getting when you buy a 25 year warranty product for your home. It's a technology partner, just the same way when you buy a Hilti drill, you hope to not have to replace it in a year or two. So the ability to evaluate their software and power electronics stack, something you wouldn't affect, you wouldn't effectively uh, be able to empower many homeowners to do. So do you have any thoughts around how to help homeowners or even lay people in the solar industry differentiate between who's who's doing well who's not how how do you know the difference between a solar or a Sonin? yes so in the end you know we truly rely on the installers to be the
1: the, the 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 vetters of of the technology because they will come in and say the homeowners they can get you a bright box from lg cam and by the way all of these companies make great products Right, uh, I can sell you a power uh, a power wall. I can send you an LG Chem, a Sonnen or a Power Block. And here's why you should choose them. And yeah, because we will do what we can to advertise the brand and 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 project what we can do with the Power Block. But ultimately, it's going to be installed as helping the customer say, look, you know, we we have done this and that. We we've seen how things actually work. And here's why you should choose a Power Block. Hopefully. It's so simple. It's so reliable. You know, you can integrate it generally easily. It has all these integrated forecasting products and our customers who have it are truly happy with it. So, but how do we get to this point at uh, this, you know, this stage as an early startup, it is simply finding customers who have needs that simply not being met by Sun and Brightbox or Tesla and who are urgently in need of a better solution. Well, sorry, a different solution, one that works for them and they come to us and then, uh, you know, we share our expertise and experience,
0: and, and that's about who our customers are. You mentioned something earlier, and I want to swing back to it now, uh, because we do have a lot of folks internationally who are listening from India and Africa, as well as Latin America, uh, what we refer to obvi- uh, often as emerging markets. Is there a counter thesis as well for emerging markets, or is there a lesson that we might be able to learn or extrapolate on how other markets could deploy the technology that we might learn from here in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the power block was originally never designed for United States or California mm-hmm. specifically until the third world came to roost in California with power outages. Something that people in emerging markets experience every day. Uh, they lose power for three, four hours a day, and and they work around it with generators and with small what they call home inverters, lead acid based battery system. That's what the, what the power block was designed for. Also, they deal with power quality issues. Uh, you, people lose computers and and, and and TVs to transits in the power lines. And uh, in India, for example, uh, power is delivered at 230 volt. And I have heard anecdotally from my contacts in India, my family is also from India. They run the voltage all the way down to 80 volt until the turn of the power line. And you're during, during a brownout, that's we have, we have, which we have experienced in, in California. So you can imagine that a lot of equipment doesn't like that very much. So... Uh, the power block was designed to put yourself in between the utility and the customer. for It completely isolates the customer from utility problems because we, not, we don't grid tie. We grid connect through a rectifier, which accepts all kinds of bad voltages and turns it, in, turns it into direct current and puts it onto a system, which in turn then delivers the whole power to the house at essentially hospital-grade power.
0: I can see and- how, yeah, I mean, having worked throughout Latin America... And I mean, even notably now, anyone who's paying attention, Puerto Rico uh, going through the the doldrums they are with Prepa, right? Like this is a very salient conversation that's easily recognizable, understood by someone in Puerto Rico or uh, or Guatemala or heck, even in Mexico, where uh, I've spent the better part of the last year and a half. So um, it's it's really interesting how emerging markets can. Uh, illustrate for us the need for this technology interface between uh, the utility and the mounting problems that we see with the current we'll call it existing or uh, legacy utility infrastructure and the direction that the utility infrastructure of the future will will eventually take which is distributed which is um, virtual etc yeah and i want to make a clear point
1: utilities are not going to go away there are people who cannot install solar panels on their roofs. We have high concentration. We have the urbanization of the world occurring, but the last mile again of the famous example of the mobile industry, mobile phone industry, is in, indeed a last mile uh, because mobile phones are not walkie-talkies. A walkie-talkie would be an off-grid system. A, a mobile phone is completely dependent on the grid. Your signal goes typically a mile or less to a cell phone tower gets picked up and goes into fiber optics and goes underneath the ground and connects you to the rest of the world. And then some in India, underneath it, comes, it goes on an undersea cable, comes out in India, goes to a cell phone tower and goes one mile to my family in India. But the game changer was that last mile. And the last mile analogy for the power industry is that high power requirement. So even if people didn't have a solar panel on their roof because they don't have the space, a high power battery in the home, could again turn the energy, the grid, into an energy energy grid rather than a power grid, and help them with all the problems that relate to uh, infrastructure.
0: Arnold, you have been around inspirational leaders, mentors, uh, entrepreneurs. You mentioned how instrumental your uh, thesis advisor was uh, in a private conversation um, in helping you sort of make some go-forward decisions what are some key lessons or takeaways for you from some of these important mentors and leaders in your life
1: i think the importance of a mentor and the personal touch if you if you will is is cannot be over and cannot be underestimated and it's something that's unfortunately missing right now for a year or so for our young entrepreneurs or high school students or middle schoolers and in my case during my life it was Uh, you know, in in middle school and then later in high school, and then ultimately at university, where there's always a person that walked in and and said something or touched me in a way that made me feel I can do it, right? And and, and that's, I think, incredibly important for everyone. And so for my side, I try to be, I'm trying to be very generous and deliberate and conscious about it. So when I meet people that uh, have an idea or they want to do something, I will say from the start that this is one opinion, one view. There are many views out there, but here's what I think, and here's what I want you to think about yourself. And 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 the one thing I, I share with everyone was a piece of wisdom I got from a private equity investor years ago in energy, when I was sitting down negotiating a deal where he was on my side negotiating with me, and the other party left the room briefly and looked at me and said, Arnold, never negotiate against yourself, because that briefly you know, kind of taking the other, and you know, the other side of, and and what I mean by that, and the way I interpreted it was never say no to yourself, right? Never negotiate against yourself. Let the Start Engine community decide that your investment isn't worth it and let them tell you that. Don't say, well, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to launch. What if I have a bad fundraising campaign? Let everyone else say no, because chances are you're typically your biggest obstacle, and often mentors are so important to recognize you, uh, hopefully in my case uh, as well and say, look, no, you can do this and and touch you on the shoulder and say, go, go for it. And I think that's very valid. And I try to do the same thing.
0: I love that. The idea that a mentor can and does in many ways serve as a catalyst, they serve as a springboard for you. And uh, I wrote down and I'm thinking about very specific examples in my own life now. Don't restrict yourself from the process just based on your fear of the outcomes.
1: Yeah, very much so. And and uh, the fear of failure, the fear of the unreasonable fear of being found out that you're not as uh, good as you as you think you are, or uh, the fear of do you project yourself something that you don't believe you're not. You need to set those all aside and just be yourself and go out there and let them let the market say no, and not don't say no to yourself.
0: What other advice from uh, sixteen plus years of entrepreneurship might you have for? Someone else who's in the throes of startup life right now.
1: Oh, well, number one, you will always underestimate how much money you need to get your product into the market or your venture off the ground. And that's perfectly okay. Everyone made the same mistake and that's natural and good and doesn't make you a poor planner. The second thing is uh, whatever forecast of your business you will make will inevitably wrong because it's it's difficult to predict the future and... And take the two founders of Google, they should be so ashamed of the business plan they put forward because it was entirely wrong. They were way more successful than anticipated. So, you know, it can go both ways. And so don't, 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 you know, just go out with a reasonable expectation, try to size up the market, try to come up with you're profitable, but don't don't put too much too much weight on yourself.
0: Do you find that entrepreneurs will look at a wrong data set or they'll consider the wrong TAM, how would how do you advise folks that are trying to size up the market specifically? You have to be within the ballpark, right?
1: Um, for example, let's say you want to start a tent company, and there's already about a hundred companies out there that make tents, custom tents, and all you need is a sewing machine and 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 a hacksaw uh, to cut the poles. So first of all, you're realizing that the th- you know the threshold is small to get into the market, right? There's very few barriers to get into this. And the next thing is uh, you look around and say, "Wow, you know the tent market is a hundred million dollar market a year in the United States." Well, it turns out circus tents, beer tents, and 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 tents for you know uh, market stands account for 98 million, and in a two million dollar market, say for true camping tents, right? In which market you already have 100 people competing, you need to know these numbers and be realistic about them. On the other side, don't let yourself be too constrained by the total accessible market that you refer to as TAM, uh, because sometimes you're creating a market, right? What was the total accessible market for the for the car phone? Remember the car phone? My father had a car phone. Well, the total ex- accessible market for the car phone was, you know, a couple uh, hundred thousand, maybe businessmen, in, in Germany and the United States. But if you were a visionary back then you would have said, no, I'm not building a car phone. I'm competing against all of those landlines. And I'm going to give, I'm going to give teenagers phones, people that haven't had phones before. That's right. And, and, and so that, you know,
0: the, a product can completely create a market as well. Is there a book or perhaps a set of books that you've gifted uh, or recommended the most that have to do with life or leadership?
1: Yes, well, the one book I uh, made everyone read in my first company, SkyFuel, and 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 hopefully, second edition is as good as the first one, was Ivan Shinhars, the founder of Patagonia, uh, "Let My People Go Surfing." I spent one hundred fifty thousand. I love Columbia Business School, and I, I I took so much away from it. I spent one hundred fifty thousand dollars at Columbia Business School in tuition, and I could have just bought the book for fifteen dollars, and and read it. But the truth is, I would have never understood it. In a way, I understand it after having gone to business school for two years and and started Skyfuel at the same time. It is a fantastic book. And it's, you know, if there's a businessman that that knows business, it's, it's Yvonne Shinar, paradoxically. The anti-businessman is one of the smartest businessmen out there. And so, yes, if you have time, read that book. It's been a while I've read it, but when I read it, I was transformed. Every page I marked, you know, think that's it. That's it. Every customer uh, it's important. Don't lose a single customer.
0: Fight for every customer. Those are the kind of things that I learned from that book. I really like it. Is there anything uh, on your nightstand now that you're currently indulging in? Yes, but it's unrelated to business,
1: if you don't mind. But um, I, uh, I've been always interested in, in, in wilderness travel. I've been up north in Canada. I've took taking my kids to the Boundary Waters for canoeing. And I've always been interested in, in wilderness medicine and emergency medicine and off-grid medicine, not because I'm waiting for the end of the world in a doomsday, but I always I always like the idea that in, a, in an emergency, at least initially, I can help myself. And that goes back to having power when there's no power. I I believe to live in a society, I, I don't believe that the cabin in the woods is is the destination for us or the world, but I like the idea that we can respond intelligently well to make the best out of a, out of a difficult situation. And so I'm reading uh, the new uh, book by doctor uh Well, it's an extension of wilderness medicine, and it's called, I think, The Prepper's Guide, Guide to Medicine. So I love reading that book.
0: I have really been enjoying the practical insights into how you are going about this, your third foray into the startup world. How can folks who are likewise intrigued learn more about you and your company? Where can they find you?
1: Yes, so they can find us at usolar.com. And uh, I believe we have a good website and you can also contact us on that page. And going forward, I think uh, you should keep
0: an eye out for us on Start Engine. Well, let's end today, as we always do, with what I call a bold prediction. Arnold, I'd like to see what you believe is perhaps the next huge problem to solve in the clean energy industry and what's holding us back. So so what one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? What's in front of us
1: isn't around the corner. It is plainly visible, and it's to scale the technology up. We have to take it from the success utility-scale solar and residential solar in the United States and move into emerging markets. And we'll be helped by... A few things that make our lives so much easier that I want our your uh, listeners to understand. Here in California, which is rather south compared to Europe, we struggle with a mismatch of solar with load. In summer, we have plenty of sunshine. In the fall, we have less. In the winter, even less so. And it doesn't match up with load. Even if the load was flat, people would have less solar available in the winter. If you move towards the equator, if you move to emerging markets, that's where all people live. That's where... Over the next decades, 90 or more percent of all electricity demand growth will be coming from. Well, guess what? They have flat consumption and they have flat solar production. We don't have to deal with any of that seasonal mismatch because the first question you get when you say, I'm gonna save the world with solar, is like, well, how's that gonna work in Alaska, right? Well, there's no one living in Alaska compared to the real problem we have and the real opportunity we see in front of us. And it's those emerging markets where the, where the fight over climate change will be won. You know, we are the oldest aristocracy of Europe. We hang on to our jewelry. You know, we don't need more, but it's in emerging markets where people buy, consume, move up the ladder, consume energy. The electricity demand growth from air conditions alone in emerging markets that's coming our way is equivalent to the total energy consumption of China. Okay, but fortunately... We'll be doing this in the market where that air conditioning is running 24-7 or around the year, and where the solar production is available around the year. So our problem, although big, is a lot easier. And that's what I see right in front of us. And that's that's what we need to develop products for that we can forego the buildup of a infrastructure that doesn't allow the easy integration for renewables. And you have talked about this on your show probably more than anyone else. We have a chance to deliver technology that is Able to stand on its own for most of the time, use some grid energy when needed, but allows a much more sustain, a robust, simpler and scalable and cheaper energy infrastructure. That's right in front of us, this opportunity.
0: Arnold Leitner is the CEO of USolar Incorporated. USolar is a plug and play whole house solar and battery energy system. And you can find more about USolar and the fantastic things they're doing not only at USolar.com, but at mySuncast where you can find the show notes for this episode and uh, link to their Start Engine video if you'd like to see how that, uh, how that got them a million dollars. Arnold, thank you so much for finally making the time to be here on Suncast. We are all grateful and better for it.
1: Nico, it's wonderful. It's been long overdue. We have known each other for a long time. So thank you for having me on the show.
0: Hey, all right. Thank you for listening here. I uh, hope that you made it through that in one sitting. I learned a ton about... How the entrepreneur in the ever-evolving solar and clean tech business needs to rethink not only their business strategy but their funding strategy. I hope that you learned a ton as well. I'd love it if you'd share with Arnold and I on LinkedIn, as some are prone to do. hashtag Solar Warrior hashtag Nico Johnson as well gets my attention on LinkedIn and Twitter. However you like to engage on the socials, we are there. If you go to mysuncast.com and click on the listen button, that takes you to the blog. You can find this episode and all of the fantastic links, especially the social links. Uh, You can get the resources and highlights from this discussion and every other discussion if you just search all the other episodes in the back catalog right there. Book recommendations, so much more. Mysuncast.com is where you'll find all of that. I hope that you're enjoying your Thanksgiving holiday and I'm so grateful that you have invested the only non renewable resource you have, and that's your time. Thanks for being here with us on this special holiday version of Suncast. And I look forward to seeing you on next week. Tuesday, of course, we'll have another Tactical Tuesday. And this coming one is a special one it's Giving Tuesday. So, following the tradition from last year, we are going to be profiling a nonprofit that we want to highlight on this Giving Tuesday where you could potentially consider giving of your time or donation to a nonprofit making a real difference, leveraging solar technology in the developing world. On next Tuesday, Giving Tuesday. Of course, next Thursday, we've got our longer form episode. And this is a very savvy young entrepreneur and new friend of mine, Austin Rosenbaum from Demand IQ. Remember, you are what you listen to. (laughs) You also are what you eat. So happy Thanksgiving. Hope that you're filling your body and brain with nutrition and information that serves you and that helps you grow thanks again for showing up solar warrior it's half the battle